I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Modes of Mouth podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. This week we are joined by sports broadcasting royalty. You'll know his name, you'll know his voice. Mr. Steve Ryder is our guest this week. Renowned broadcaster across many different sports. Of course we love him for his F1 and British touring car work, but the world will know him for covering all sorts of sports series as well as shows like Sports Night and Grandstand. Thank you so much to you guys who continue to download and listen if you like it. Please do leave us a review, it really helps us to get bigger and enjoy. A very warm welcome to episode 31 of the Motormouth podcast. We're recording this on Wednesday, the 10th of June. Before we introduce today's guest, I want to remind you guys that we have an app and we have a website and we've just made some updates, so go check it out. Search Motormouth on your app store or visit motormouth.club. You can join up, make a profile, start following other folks and check out the latest racing news, opinion pieces and exclusive MMTV videos featuring the ugly mug of my cohort, Harry, um, which are all now up and running on the app, so go and have a look. With that said, I now have to dive through the World Wide Web to link up with my trusty, tall, talented, talkative and tenacious co-host, Harry Benjamin. How are you? I'm very well, Tim. Thank you as ever for the very glamorous and luxurious introductions. <laughs> um, I'm doing well. Back in the cupboard. Uh, I really have to slouch in here to fit in uh, this suitcase cupboard, but um, it works well for the audio quality. Um, yeah, no, all good. It's just, just getting on with life, really. But I mean, it's you that's got the big news coming. Yes. Well, if, if I disappear at any point during this recording, you know why, because due date for um, Sylvie Baby number three is um, less than 72 hours away so um, oh. it's, uh, it's it's all go and um, if you if hear that door behind you uh, it, flies open any yeah. minute uh, <laughs> I'm out I'm tapping out you'll just have to carry on 
on your own. Um, with that said, shall I bring in today's guest? Absolutely. So Steve Ryder uh, is one of the UK's most recognised and loved sports, um, and more importantly to us, motorsport presenters. Uh, he's hosted basically everything, every sport ever, including the Olympics, Grandstand, Sports Personality of the Year, Rugby, and of course, our beloved Formula One. Without any further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Steve Ryder to the Motormouth podcast. Steve, how are you doing? Very well indeed, and uh, good luck to you. I'll be brief uh, because of <laughs> your your attention is elsewhere. No, I wish you all the best with that. It's, Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's uh, a happy time. Number three, it's going to be chaotic in this household. Yeah, uh, do not envy you one bit. Um, but Steve, welcome to the Most Mouth Podcast. Thank, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. So, uh, first off, you know we're all in sort of whatever you call it these days, semi lockdown, half lockdown, whatever you want to uh, label it. How have you been getting on with life uh, in this new world? Yeah, fine. It's. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's. Uh, it, it is a huge difference from my normal schedule because ever since you know I became a freelance broadcaster, you always work from home or you work mm. from location. Uh, and if programs aren't happening, then then there's no need to go to race circuits or studios or so on. So uh, I work from here. I mean, not this room in particular because we can't get a signal out of my study. But uh, uh, you know, I'm used to working at home and uh, uh, can work around it. The frustrating thing is. Uh, the number of offices that are closed down and the normal, you know, routes of communication mm. struggle. But um, uh, we're getting through it. We're nearly there, I think. Have you been missing uh, racing? Are you excited to get back towards the end of this year? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, for me, the the schedule. I say is only these days, but it's the British Touring Car Championship. We were on the very brink of the first race before lockdown started. We'd done the, uh, you know, the pre-season stuff and we were up at Silverstone and so on. And uh, and then the curtain came down. But, um, you know, all credit to Toka. They've, they've really got their act together in conjunction with ITV. And we do seem to have a fairly you know, touchwood bulletproof schedule for mm. for getting the thing back on the road at the beginning of August. You know, much can happen between now and then, but we're looking very carefully uh, at what happens with other sports and with Formula One in particular. But um, but hopefully we'll be back in action in August. Good, good to hear. Now, listen, before we touch on um, British touring cars and other parts of your career, let's, let's wind the clock back a bit. Um, so take us back to um, young Steve. I'm talking very young Steve. Um, when... Where was home when you were when you were growing up as a child, um, and what hints were there for what was to come for you? Was there any indication that you would end up in the broadcasting world and the sporting world? And take us back to those days. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, my passport says I was born in Dartford, and probably Wikipedia says I was born in Dartford. I've never been to Dartford in my life. Uh, I was born in. Uh, <laughs> it does say that on Wikipedia, by the way. In Dartford Nursing Home, and uh, no, I grew up in southeast London, right. uh, around Charlton and Blackheath, and that sort of area. Uh, and as for indications of what was to come, I played a bit of football. Um, uh, in my youth and a bit of cricket, none of which to, was to any high standard. Uh, but I had a bit of a, the gift of the gab and I could write a bit. So um, so when I left school, I left school on the Friday uh, and joined the local newspaper in South East London on, on the Monday uh, as a sports reporter, largely covering football. I was covering Charlton and Millwall and Crystal Palace. And there was no sort of real, you know, indication that broadcasting was going to be a route because... Back then, and uh, and I shudder to say it, this was 1968, uh, local radio hadn't really started, let alone yeah. anything else. Uh, so there was no assumption that um, uh, the broadcasting could be a possibility. But then when that eventually came on stream, I, I did a few things. When London Broadcasting started, 
Uh, I was one of the first in the door and working for the sports team there. And that's when the broadcasting side uh, started. And, uh, you know, like everyone else, you know, you struggle in the first six months. But the great thing was that, uh, you know, with a fledgling broadcast operation like LBC, everyone was experiencing it for the first time. So we all learned together. And, uh, you know, there were some significant names who came through it uh, as well from that era. John Snow was one, Peter Allen and so on. Um, and that was me off and running. Um, uh, do you want me to carry on with the David Copperfield stuff? I'm, going to go a bit <laughs> I'm curious, uh, with the football stuff, who's your team? Uh, growing up just up the hill from the valley, I'm a Charlton man. Okay. And uh, I was, um, my one claim to fame is that, well, I played for Charlton Reserves once. Oh, very good. Uh, as a goalkeeper. You say very good. It was only because I was covering them and they were a man short. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about the inversatile. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, you know, we're not talking Liverpool or United here. Uh, but um, uh, I've got a picture which I should have brought out for you, but it's uh, uh, when I was at the local paper, we had a goalkeeper at Charlton named Graham Tutt who got a very bad eye injury and he had to sadly retire from the game so we staged a testimonial for him at the Valley he got the injury up at Sunderland so we brought the Sunderland team down to play in this uh, testimonial got 19,000 there and uh, the preamble was a little match uh, against the Variety Club or the Showbiz team or whatever they call themselves Uh, but who was going to play them so we decided to put together a team just of London goalkeepers all playing out on the field. And you had Bob Wilson, you had Pat Jennings, you had Peter Panetti, all out on, Alex Stepney played, uh, a young Mervyn Day, and so on. Uh, and the unanimous vote was, I should go in goal. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, we had we had 18,500 there, and I was behind this, you know, stellar lineup of, you know, the best goalkeepers in the world, effectively. Um I conceded three goals from Bill Oddie alone. <laughs> oh, that's that's not good. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the end of my career. But, uh, <laughs> oh, short-lived. How, how tall yeah. are you, by the way? I mean, you don't strike me as, you know, six foot five. I, I might be wrong. Five, you know. Yeah, I'm sitting down. Oh, yes. <laughs> six foot five, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll take that. Uh, five eight, I think. Yeah, that's I mean... Not necessarily the correct stature for a goalkeeper, but you know, I was uh, I was about half the height of every outfield player. Um, but um, but you were agile. I, I can tell you right now, being six foot five does not make you a good goalie. I was awful in goal. I retired from uh, the B team under twelve uh, football team at school. That was my last outing as a goalie. I was absolutely <laughs> dreadful. And I'm six foot five with size sixteen feet. You'd think I'd make a decent goalie, but no. Yeah, well, you couldn't get down to the low shots. I couldn't get up to the high ones. Um, oh, you know, between us, we yeah. We, you could have managed between us, yeah. Well, um, let's. let's uh, that, that's a great uh, insight into how it sort of started. And then, where did the the switch over to being in front of the screen and, and beginning to broadcast on TV come about? Well, that was uh, nineteen seventy-seven. Uh, I was working at uh, LBC. I, I still had very little to do with motorsport because mm. motorsport and radio weren't a, uh, a natural fit. Uh, and in 1977, uh, a job was advertised in television. I mean, it just doesn't happen these days. Uh, at Anglia Television, yeah. they, were, they were looking for a, uh, an assistant sports editor. Oh, yeah. That building's still going strong, I think, as well. Uh, uh, in well Norwich. I, the, the building, the old post office building uh, in Norwich is, is still there. But uh, yeah. it, it contains very little of Anglia Television. 
Mm. Um, so I applied for this job, and we had, uh, and it, it got down to a short list of uh, three or four. I, I can't remember who the fourth one was, uh, but the rest of the short list was Alan Parry, you know, who uh, commentator on Sky still. Uh, Tony Adamson, who went on to uh, present the radio coverage of Wimbledon, uh, and myself, and uh, and I was lucky enough to get the job, and so started in television, and that really is where is where the motorsport came in because being based at Norwich, I mean you had you know great football stories to tell as well, uh, but to go out with a film camera to places like. Silverson and, and in particular Snetterton, uh, you, you realised, you know, how much depth there was uh, to an average race meeting, how many human stories there were to be told. It wasn't sort of the one-dimensional football coverage and so on. Uh, and I grew to get more and more involved in, in in what was happening with the bikes and the cars at Snetterton. And, of course, down the road also, you had um, Lotus, Kettering uh, 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 of a Hall, and 77, 78... Colin Chapman, Mario Andretti, Ronnie Peterson, and we started to do more and more work with uh, the team and developing programming um, uh, with the team. Got to, I wouldn't say I got to know Colin Chapman well, but you know you were able to, you mm. know, have some fairly sort of privileged access. And with all the, all that sort of raw material, it, you know, it was hard not to become a uh, a motorsport fan, and that, and that really is where it all began. Were you a motorsport fan? prior to that or was that where it kicked it off the interest I mean, that's where it kicked it I mean you were aware but you know living in South East London um, uh, you were conscious that something was going on at Crystal Palace and so on and you could occasionally hear the uh, you know the helicopters going over to Brands Hatch and so on I was thinking the other day the first motorsport experience I suppose I had was when living in South East London my brother and I went to uh, I think we entered as a as the cub group, the cub pack we were in. It was a soapbox derby uh, in a, in a park in Erith, and this would be about 1955, six, I suppose. Uh, and the one thing I remember was that the guest of honour who was presenting the prizes was Stuart Lewis Evans, right? Uh, the driver who was later to lose his life in uh, Morocco, and. Uh, and I've often thought, you know, for some reason, I remember Stuart Lewis Evans being there as, as being the first racing driver I'd ever met. But the weird thing about that was that you'd think, well, if Stuart Lewis Evans was there, Bernie Eccleston must have been right alongside, you know, <laughs> because Bernie was his manager. And I thought, well, that's a weird thing to look back on. That, yeah, that wow. Getting a prize in a soapbox derby in 55 from Bernie Eccleston <laughs> was uh, now... <laughs> It's all come full circle now. <laughs> so you, you, you just don't get those kind of stories uh, these days, I don't think. But you know, going up through the ranks in broadcasting and, and dipping your toe into you know pretty much every sport that was coming your way, did you have anyone that you particularly admired growing up and you wanted to sort of either you know well, never copy, but someone you know was a bit of a hero to you? Uh, well, there were lots in broadcasting terms, uh, or, or other. Um, I mean, there were lots of people that that, that you wanted to, that you, you know, you admired their approach. And David Coleman was 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 the particular presenter in uh, in my era. The great radio voices of the time we loved to emulate as well. Peter Jones, Ken Wollstonehome, and all those sort of we were never coming close. Uh, uh, and then Des Liner was just sort of. Starting out his career at Tesla, around around same time, and, and clearly had something that uh, that, uh, that nobody else had. Um, 
But no, it was just, you know, being fortunate enough to be around, uh, and, and this would come later when I went to the BBC, you know, some of the legendary names of sports broadcasting. And, uh, you know, it's hard not to learn, um, to learn a lot. But uh, uh, at Anglia, you just did your own thing, really. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't legends. Far by fire. Uh, we weren't legends. And we were, oh, God, some of the stuff that we had to work on. Up there. I mean, you, it was great because you had Norwich City with John Bond and you had Bobby Robson down at Ipswich. And mm. uh, but I remember it we had the, the Peterborough Dyke Jumping Championships we had to do as well. <laughs> things like, things like it was, <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. You well, know? No, no, it's probably people, people love a bit of dyke jumping these days, but it's... Uh, yes. <laughs> it seems to work in East Anglia anyway, but it's... <laughs> um, so moving forward through into the 80s, um, ITV, Moscow Olympics... Um, that must have yeah. been a, 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 a break and um, yeah. and and a very interesting experience. Tell us a little bit about about that. Well, yes, it was, and it was a complete surprise because I'd been at Anglia about two and a half years, and 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 you know just sort of scrabbling around, learning the trade as a as a regional broadcaster. And then in 1980, ITV had the uh, the Olympics along with the BBC. Uh, and in, in those days, ITV was a conglomeration of about 16 companies. You had TV South and you had Granada and you had Central and Anglia and, and everyone else. So they had to sit down and organize who from which company was going to do everything. And they, the, the meetings went on for about a month and uh, uh, who was going to be chief engineer, who was going to direct this, who was going to do that. So um, there was a wonderful guy who used to run ITV in those days, John Bromley. And now he was a legendary guy that, that, that you learned lots from. Uh, and he got to the end of his tether. He said, right, who's going to present it? And he said, I'll tell you what. He said, let's have somebody that no one's heard of. And then, you know, there can't be any argument. And he rang up Anglia Television and, uh, you know, who have you got? Who have you got? And he said, well, Steve Ryder is, uh, is our chap. He's been here a couple of years. Tell him he's presenting the Olympics. <laughs> and uh, and that was it. And uh, <laughs> Wow. And off I went. Uh the things evolved from there because I was due to be part of the presenting team in Moscow. But then came the, the 1980 boycott. So they moved a part of the presentation back to London. So Dickie Davis stayed in London uh, and I became the presenter in Moscow. And, uh, you know, I'd never done anything on the network before. And then suddenly there you are in you know, the biggest uh, arena of all. And, um, and it was sink or swim. You either... Mm-hmm completely cocked it up and were never heard of again uh, or you or you managed to survive and uh, you know I was lucky to uh, not to bump into the furniture too much and, uh... <laughs> well you, you're famed for this you know calm laid back presenting style that must yeah. have you know served you well have, have you developed that or has it just been a, a natural thing for you is it a coping mechanism almost yeah well it's, it's, it's drugs mainly yeah um, works that works <laughs> once they wear off at the end of the program you've got, got them all over the show but it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> when the camera cuts uh. to be honest you know right at the start um <laughs> I mean, everyone gets nervous, but when I went to Anglia, um, I, I mean, the nerves were a big problem. Uh, and, uh, and also in radio, I remember I came in to do the, the, uh, the sports news once in about 1975 at LBC, and you do sports news on the half hour. Uh, 
and you know they got the main presenter of the program and his guest there and and I think it was about the third bulletin I did I walked in the door and I've been listening to the program and uh, I heard the presenter say right you know we'll have more from our guest in a moment uh, but first of all here's Steve Ryder with the sports news and you sit down and you, I looked up Michael Parkinson <laughs> muddy hell and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this was when Parky was, uh, you know, at the, the, the top of the tree, and I nearly died. And then when I went to to Anglia, uh, I did a couple of, I think my first live <laughs> insert into the program. Um, my parents came up, and, and they went to the house where I was staying, so they could, because you can't watch it anywhere else apart from going into the region. Mm. My parents came up to, you know, to see my... Uh, uh, you know, my debut, and I, I sat in the dressing room and I thought, this is awful. I, I physically cannot, cannot go on. Can't do it. And um, uh, 10 minutes before the start of the programme, power cut. Yes. The whole, <laughs> the whole, I, I did do just that. And it was, um, yeah. By the bell. yeah. You know, all the way through uh, my career, it's, 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 not been a problem because you, you know, you take it as a reassurance that you know if you're not feeling nervous, then you don't really take the job too seriously. But mm. uh, um, the talking of nerves, and, and, and you talk about people who are, you know, conquering their nerves. Uh, the most wound up person I ever worked with, and uh, was Des Lynham. Really, I mean, Des was. Uh, you know, it was. We used to do Sports Personality of the Year, and um, Sue Barker and myself uh, in the later years. And half an hour before the program, all you were, all you were doing was calming Des down because everything was going to go wrong. This, that, and the other. Oh my, is it brandy and all that sort of thing? And we're all trying to, you know, reassure him that you know everything's going to be okay, and uh, you know it's only television and all that sort of thing. God. It's and funny, then the isn't it? Three of us would walk out to do sport, and he would be, you know, Des Lyman. Yeah. And we'd be in bits. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. You, you you never hear about those sorts of things, um, obviously. Yeah. And and you see people like Des presenting. You're like, he just look. He exudes calmness, yeah. um, as you do. Um, and I th- I don't know whether it was an interview I watched with you, um, or it, it was someone else. But they would talk about Murray Walker. I think it was you actually. And um, you know, obviously Murray. When you when you listen to Murray commentate, you um, it sounds like he's doing it all off the cuff, and it's all amazing, and he's just you know fully yeah. in the moment. But I'm pretty sure it was you that was saying this, that he he has scripts that he goes over again and again and again and again and again and and makes it look like he's doing it um, just in the moment. But in reality, he's been preparing and and pouring over things. Well, in fairness to Murray, I mean, he does do the proper stuff as well. But when we were doing the... (laughs) When we were doing the, uh, the the first few years of the touring car championship, it was all post produced, and uh, so the, the the commentary needed to be dubbed on after we'd finished the edit. Mm. So Murray took this as a chance um, uh, to do it absolutely bang on because the way we used to put the touring car championship edits together, nobody could commentate on it mm. because it, it, it was just a crash fest of, of every single incident that happened around the circuit. <laughs> And, and so Murray had to sit down and, and sort of create some sort of narrative uh, that made sense of it all. But, you know, he really sort of pushed the boat out. We had to put him up in a hotel overnight because he, he took 48 hours to do this. Yeah. And, and then he would, he would dub it and we would, we would all have to sit there in the dubbing theatre with Murray uh, and listen to the replay, you know, very <laughs> soon and so on. But he was, he was wonderful. And, uh, you know, bless him, he, he, he 
really help put the uh, the championship and motorsport on the map. hundred percent, an absolute hero. We'll come on to him more later. Let's fast forward a little bit. So, uh, nineteen eighty five, you take over from Harry Carpenter as um, BBC um, presenter of Sports Night, um, and then I think the first time that I really became aware of you was um, in the nineties um, with Grandstand, which became this sort of institution that everybody loved. Um, that must have been a great great gig to get. Well, it was, and, and, you know, it was a bit like that moment in 1980 where, you know, you parachuted in to do the um, um, the Olympics. There was a feeling, you know, I, I didn't, I'd done World of Sport with, with ITV from 80 to 85 and bits and pieces and so on. But there was always a feeling that the BBC is where you needed to be if you wanted to make progress in sports broadcasting. So my agent said, you know, why don't we, you know, just flag up a lunch with the the boss and you know we'll all meet each other and we met in this uh, hotel in Park Lane uh, Jonathan Martin and John Robinson who was the editor of Sports Night and he was always a man of few words Jonathan and, 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 and before even the menus had arrived he said right uh, nice to meet you he said we want you to take over from Harry Carpenter on Sports Night um, within four or five months uh, we want you to eventually take over the the golf presentation from Harry Carpenter we want you immediately to do a minimum of 25 editions of Grandstand a year uh, alongside Des Lyman. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was no discussion or anything like that. And uh, and he said, um, you know, you, you'll probably want to talk about money. He said, but Harry was with us for 25 years and never had a contract. And, um, uh, you know, we anticipate you, that you'll be the same. And, you know, 10 years, I never had a contract. Oh, um, God, how times have changed. Uh, and off you go. And, and, you know, there was that sort of longevity. But the great thing about Grandstand, which was the initial program that I was lucky enough to work on, is is that if you're a presenter, you know, it, it is like a, a smorgasbord of material just passes by you every weekend. And you, and you can take your pick of what you want. You know, if you want to relate to rugby in particular, or you feel a particular empathy for motorsport or cricket, then uh, the ingredients are there for you to get more and more involved. Uh, and for me, it was um, uh, a connection that I already had with motorsport, that you were able to develop that through grandstand. But nowadays, if you're going into sports broadcasting, the, the options are huge. Uh, but in a way, it, it's far more diluted. If you want to be a, uh, a presenter, the first question is, well, do you want to be a motorsport presenter? Mm. Do you want to be a cricket presenter? Mm. There is no opportunity existing now for you to present everything. Mm. Uh, and for 10 years, we had just lived the life. You know, one weekend you're doing Wimbledon, the next weekend the British Grand Prix, then you're off to the Olympics, pop back to the Open and, and, and so on. Um, it doesn't happen anymore, but I was just in the very, very lucky position of being uh, of being a presenter at a time when, uh, when the BBC was absolutely dominant in yeah. terms of... Uh, what it do, do you think that it's it's right that um, sports broadcasting is a little bit more diluted? I suppose because I suppose the you know look at Sky they they want their one presenter to be so focused on that rather than having you know spread spread all around you know Sky's coverage of whatever it is or whatever broadcaster. Do you? I mean, there's I think there's sides for both of it, but interested to get your thoughts. Well, yeah, it, it, it is. Um, I mean, you do become. Uh, absorbed uh, in one particular area. And I remember when I eventually went from from the BBC back to ITV in 2005, I had an offer from ITV to come back uh, and just specifically do 
Formula One. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that appealed to me because, you know, despite what I said, 20 years of doing absolutely everything, mm-hmm. you know, being an expert on rugby one week and an expert on, you know, taekwondo the next is, is a bit wearing. Uh-huh. So I thought it would be great to come back and throw everything at, uh, at one sport. So, so I did appreciate that, but it's, uh, it, it is the fact that, you know, that option doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and you fear for, for people and it was a lesson, not a lesson that I learned, but it was an experience that I had that when you go back to ITV, you throw your heart and soul into being um, a Formula One presenter. Four years later, they lose the contract. Yeah. And, and suddenly you're not, you know, where are you going? And yeah. uh, the next outlet has got this team in place and, and you know, you're starting all over again. Yeah. yeah. It, it feels like on radio, there's still a little bit of it. You know, there are certain radio presenters who, who seem to move across different sports a little bit more. And there's one or two, I guess, on TV who, who have dabbled in different sports, but not at the same time, like Jake Humphrey moving around from F1 yeah. and football and Vernon Kay. I think he did American football at one point and now Formula yeah. E and so on. So yeah. it's, um, it's interesting how people flit about. Yeah. Um, let's, let's focus a little bit on the motorsport side of things then. So um, obviously... Um, we all know you from uh, British Touring Cars, but also Formula One. Do, do you have a, a preference with those two um, types of motorsport? Is there one that you enjoy uh, working on more than the other? Uh, I love the Touring Car Championship. Uh, and I was lucky enough, um, I keep saying lucky enough, but I'm, you know, it's, it's true, I was lucky enough to be you know, around Colin Chapman and Lotus at, at, at the end of the 70s. Uh, which was a fantastic era, 70s into the 80s, a fantastic era of, of, of Formula One. I have to admit, when, when I came back to, uh, to Formula One in 2005, having left it you know, in broadcast terms in 96, when, when the BBC lost the contract, came back in 2005, and he had the excitement of Lewis Hamilton, but the corporate structure and the uniformity of the sport just... Um, left me cold mm. and uh, you know everything was micromanaged and uh, uh, and so on um, mm. and that's not a criticism it, it, it was it was just myself contrasting that with the experience of wandering around the paddock and being able to walk into any motorhome and talk to any driver and you know uh, and, and just be a lot closer to the sport than you were able to do in uh, in modern times touring car championship is is a sort of recreation of that kind of atmosphere everyone is approachable and uh, yeah. um mm. it, you know nobody is is, is particularly full of them we certainly found that didn't we yeah. yeah we went to donington last year i think it was yeah. the first time i've actually been to a british touring car race and the freedom you got was i, I, I know i've i don't have experienced formula one previously at yeah. being in a, in a pit lane and it was it was i was like i don't i don't think we're allowed in here like i think who do we have to They're ask like, come I think, on in no I, I don't think, no come on in it's fine have a look at the car do you want to do you want to chat to this guy yeah he's free let's do it and i was like this is ridiculous but so nice freedom just makes for way more uh, entertaining more relevant broadcasting i think it does and it, and it helps develop the personalities and yeah uh, and so on and it's uh, but that was how it was in 83 mm. and four and uh uh, you know, I remember the, you know, when we used to go down, and uh, you know, Nigel Mansell was 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 in his prime, and he he would have a a motorhome parked in the infield with a white picket fence around it, and and sit in his deck chair just talking to people on on a Saturday afternoon after qualifying. Brilliant. It was just you know no sort of 
uh, you know, sort of uh, burdensome timetable of media interviews or sponsor this and sponsor that and so on. But um, that, you, you mm. can't hark back to the old days. Do you, um, what do you think of Formula One today? I think, uh, from my point of view, I would love it to become a little bit more human. I, I, I think... Um, I think it needs to be rationalised. I think I think the experience of the virus of the last few months has concentrated a lot of people's minds and, and mm-hmm. it's concentrated it uh, in terms of at last getting the cost cap uh, through. And uh, that is essential because, you know, you can admire the, the investment of a Mercedes or a Ferrari and you can admire the, the kind of technology that is the result of that. Uh, but if you haven't got a race, uh, then then the whole product is meaningless. And unless you can preserve the back half of the grid and, and make the thing sustainable, uh, not only for the for the grandees who have dominated the sport, but for the new teams and the new organisations who want to come in, you know, it's like promotion and relegation in football. You've got to have that com- competitive structure. Uh, uh, so I think it's moving back in the right direction and. Um, I think Liberty have come in with a few interesting ideas. Um, uh, I think they needed a little bit more guidance than than they've had, but I think they're starting to get things right. But um, I would like to see a smaller schedule. Uh, I would like to see the whole sport becoming a little bit more relaxed. Um, And I know it's never going to be... Uh, it's always going to be a slave to budgets and expenditure and so on. Um, but it, but if that can be dismantled just a little. And yeah. if somebody can think also uh, about the show, about the weekend of the Grand Prix, um, I mean, is it enough to see cars trundling around in a rather dispiriting way on a Friday when, when you've got 45,000 mm. people there? Yeah. You know, you, want, you really can't shoehorn anything else into a Saturday than it needs a show. Mm, yeah. And, uh, you know, the touring car championship is a very different animal and, and it's unfair to, um, to uh, you know, compare the two because one is much more sort of nimble and flexible and, uh, and so on. But, um, you know, you like to think that a Sunday on a touring car weekend is, is, is value for money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. It sounds like you get way more value for money with British touring cars than you yeah. do. Formula One. And yes, you can't compare because, you know, they are two different sports, uh, but, you know, they're both motorsport and, you know, they both have fans that attend cars going around tracks. So there's, you know, what's going on here? It's just so hard. The the chorus that surrounds F1 is, is, you know, where is, you know, we know who the champion is going to be. Mm. Yeah. It's going to be where are, where are the surprises and so on. You know, that that is becoming louder and louder. And and I think... um, uh, I think it needs to be addressed. You, you, you've got a top man there who's trying to drive it on in Ross Braun. Uh, you've got a, an army of marketing people at St. Helens doing God knows what, but, it's, uh, yeah. uh, but that's another story. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it feels like it's starting slowly to head in the right direction. I think over the next couple of years, you know, like you say, with the budget cap, which is, is considerably lower than, than some of the bigger teams would probably like, is going to make a difference. The new aero package that's coming in in 2022 will, will hopefully make the racing more interesting. So touch wood, they can do something. And it is difficult when you're dealing with such big names like Ferrari and Mercedes and McLaren and getting everyone to buy into ideas and get things pushed yes. through is, is a challenge. 
Yeah. Um, one thing, I mean, I wasn't going to drone on about it because I'm famous for it, but uh, the, the, the one thing um, where I do still relate to F1 in, in terms of the work we're trying to do, because I come from the 70s, because I come from the 80s, uh, I remember through the 80s, after Bernie took over, every time you went into a you know pit lane with a camera on your shoulder, you, you'll be recording fantastic stuff. That all is piled up at Biggin Hill. And I've been trying to convince Liberty and various other people involved in FOM. There's about 30,000 hours of Formula One-related material, non-race material, that has never been researched, never been touched. And the stories that could be told from that archive are are, are just Mm -hmm. unbelievable. I totally, totally agree. And actually, I was at a conference. Where was it? I can't remember where it was. Maybe it was a black book or one of those. I'm not sure. And you were interviewing um, one of the top guys from Sky, and you gave him a really, really rough ride about that. And he and and he was really sort of trying to dodge the question and didn't really give an answer. But well, I, you know, I can't understand why you know what the objections are to to, to actually being creative with this material. So what we've done, and in particular because of the. Um, the fact that it's the 70th anniversary of the Formula One World Championship. Uh, uh, a major documentary was commissioned by FOM, uh, which hasn't been delivered because they couldn't, uh, well, they couldn't get into the Big and Hill archive, really, uh, and they couldn't really access everything that happens before 1981 because that's, you know, the rights are held elsewhere. Mm. So we went to the BBC and said, do you know what you've got in your archive from 1950 through to 1981? And they said, well, you know, it's not very much uh, and it's not worth researching. Uh, And said, well, can we research it? Uh, And they were a little bit reluctant because nobody really takes that approach to uh, BBC archive research. And, uh, And we went in there four or five months ago and we've identified over probably over three, 400 hours uh, of F1 material from the 50s, 60s and 70s, uh, which the BBC are now turning into a, a three-part documentary next year. But it is the complete story of the formation of the Formula One World Championship, not just Amazing. race race, but it is all the old programs that, you know, tell the story of, you know, Ken Tyrrell and all the old wheel-based programs and uh, uh, which had never been seen since the day they were transmitted. Wow. So we're working to bring all that uh, on stream into the market. We put a thing on the um, the BBC website just a few weeks ago with uh, uh, on the anniversary of the 1950 British Grand Prix. Yeah. Uh, an old newsreel that we found uh, telling the story of the the first Silverstone Grand Prix. And I know footage is around of, you know, the 1950 British Grand Prix, but this was the complete newsreel production. Oh, wow. Which had never been seen. That's still up there on the BBC website. We'll we'll um, check it out. Well, it makes it even more frustrating that that Sky won't give up um, (laughs) what what they've got hidden away in in the vaults there. Well, it's not Sky. It is is FOM. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm loath to be too critical because they've got so much on their plate. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and you uh, need it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know when um, uh, you know we've we, we've had long discussions about it. Let's just put it like yeah. that. Mm. And I think that hopefully now that they see what is available from a different source, i.e., the BBC, starting to take that material yeah, seriously, might encourage them. Hopefully, it'll be the trigger for them to to think. Oh, hang on, because this is the material that. Um, that gave us the Senate documentary. This is, 
the producers of Senna went into the, the Biggin Hill archive um, at the invitation of Bernie for some reason, and uh, they were working on a half-hour, maybe 45-minute television feature, uh, and they came away with a three-hour feature film, which, because the material they found was such a surprise and of such good quality. But, you know, that's where we're... Well, we've got to keep prodding. You've got two more advocates here, so we'll, we'll prod as well. One day we'll get there. Now, listen, Mr. Ryder, this is the most important part of the show here. Very, very important. We have a very competitive quiz, and I will hand over to my esteemed colleague to introduce you to Motormouth. Go on. Mr. Steve Ryder, welcome to Motormouths, the hardest quiz in motorsports. Uh, there is a leaderboard of over 20 people we've uh, subjected to this quiz. Nice. Um, there are 13 points up for grabs, okay? Yeah. And uh, the quiz questions are all related to you and your career. So hopefully oh. that stands you in a good chance of getting the answers right. But yeah, it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, um, okay. I'll just get Wikipedia up. Uh, <laughs> Banned, not going to help you i'm afraid <laughs> especially if it says you're born in dartford i don't believe any of that um so uh, we've got four clips that we're going to play you which hopefully you'll be able to hear uh, yeah. and then have a listen to the clips and uh, a bit like question of sports style i'll then ask you a couple of questions about the clips afterwards okay. um okay should we start with clip number one yeah here we go it's good and it's the right thing to be positive about the bbc when you leave i mean i told when i told the bbc to piss off uh, i i forgot I forgot to say all that stuff, and, uh, and I found the way back very difficult, but, um, I, but you must be very proud of what's been achieved over the last three years, I'm sure. Okay, Steve, what were you talking about there? God knows. Um, <laughs> it was probably, was it Autosport Awards? Correct. That is one point in the bag. It was Autosport Awards. I was probably talking to, and we used to have a good old spa, um, to Martin Brundle or Mark Blundell. I'll go with, go with your first answer. <laughs> right. Can I bring on a prop here? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah, by all means. Absolutely, go for it. I'll give you the point for talking to Martin Brundle. <laughs> right. We'll forget about and a bonus. Surely a bonus point for a prop. I mean, and this has never prop. been done before. Oh it's, oh, it's a proper... It's taking it off the wall. Careful. God, don't do any damage. I can't get off the wall. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> it's glued on. How did I, how did I manage to get... It? Oh, well, anyway, it, it was a very nice um, cover of Autosport. That, can you see that? Yeah, it's, it's in picture. We can see it. It was a cover of Autosport that, um, that they were very kind enough to do for me after 25 years of uh, oh. the Autosport. And it's signed by uh, oh, Sebastian Vettel and everyone mm. else. And, uh, you know... It, it, I had such great fun doing that. We did 28 years wow. of the Order Sport Awards, and they, it was a it was a unique occasion and mm. uh, a lot of good memories. From you, that. you enjoy a good spa on stage with um, with people, don't you? We used to have yeah, we used to have a set. I mean, I was never really sort of up for it, but then um, <laughs> uh, you know, some things you just can't resist. But it's, <laughs> but, it's <laughs> but I remember you know Martin Brundle was always a. You know, a bit of a sort of set piece, mm. and uh, Christian Horner was the one that you know you would come on with a lot of sort of serious points that you wanted to make with Christian, and and he would have the, his own agenda. Yeah, of, I bet. You know, winding up, and you know, what well, can we go in this direction or that direction? And so, but the best ever was uh, was Bethel, uh, the first year uh, he came, and he insisted on coming. <laughs> 
every year, even though every year, it, well, every year he was world champion, even though every Sunday night that we had the Autosport Awards clashed with the German Sports Personality of the Year Awards. Oh. And, and he opted out every year from the German Sports person and, and came to the Grosvenor. Yeah. And, uh, but the first, the first time, I mean, how old was he when he... First came probably about. I should know this. I I, th- I think uh, I was 20s. at this. Uh, yeah, I was at this one. It was the first time I saw Sebastian Vettel's personality. Well, exactly because you know because you're world champion and you're getting the you know, the top billing, you're the last on the stage. And uh, Sebastian, at that young age, it's probably changed. Didn't drink. Uh, but thought he might give it a go this night. <laughs> he was sitting there for about three hours and eventually got up on the stage about 10 past 11. And it was like the worst best man speech you've ever heard. Oh, no. <laughs> but he was terrific. And he, he was doing, um, you know, impersonations. We couldn't get it. was wonderful. He's very funny. He's a funny guy. 20, 20 minutes. But the great thing about the Autosport Awards was that it was... Um, it was like a sort of club night. You know, you can do, you got the FIA gala and you got these awards mm. where everyone needs to be on their best behaviour. But here, there was, you know, it wasn't going anywhere uh, at that stage, though every sort of mm. recording device seemed to be switched. Mm-hmm. Um, and people could just let their hair down and, uh, you know, have some fun and, you know, say what they really thought and so on. And, uh, you know, I, I love doing it. And, um, yeah, but all things change anyway. Well, it always looked like a, an amazing event. For one final point on that clip we played you, could you tell me the year in which you were talking to Martin Brundle? I would say... 1997. Oh, no! Way off. Out. You are way, way off. Oh, 2011. Really? 2011 you're talking oh, to him about taking over um about uh sky taking over the bbc's uh, f1 coverage oh really yeah still two, two out of three it's two a difficult three, one that for me because you know I, th- I think i told the bbc to piss off i think every year on that yeah. day so <laughs> i think there should be there should be a best bits on, on youtube of steve ryder's roasts because there's so many so many good ones program uh, ready to be made um okay tim shall we have clip number two here it comes the start of the season apart from the two retirements in malaysia a lot of really encouraging ingredients from from the williams point of view yeah oh not easy tough one it's definitely me it is you yes that's you (laughs) no points for that one i'm afraid (laughs) um who are you talking to he's struggling isn't he He's struggling. Definitely. Shall I give it to you one more time? No, that won't help. I'm trying to think. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably 2007. Close. Very close. 2008. Mm. Further away. Other way. There you go. <laughs> yes. Uh, 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 uh. Mark Webber? Yes. Yes. Correct. There. You're talking to Mark Webber, absolutely. Yeah. And for a final point, can you tell me where? What country were you were you talking to Mark Webber in? Well, I mentioned Malaysia. Yes. But is it not Malaysia? What? You're talking about Malaysia. Could it have been Bahrain? Oh, afraid oh, not. Australia. <laughs> of course, we started in Malaysia, didn't we? Yeah, so it was the race after. Yeah. But again, solid, oh, yeah. consistent yeah. effort. 
two out of three again. So very consistent. You're already you're streaks ahead of Karun Chandok already. So that's uh, that's great. That's not An ultimate clip for you. Clip number three. Have a listen to this. This is tough. Here we go. He's in the way of Alan Menu and he's not moving over. Menu hits him. Cox, Cox goes through. He's going to try and take the lead. I think this is quite hard. Any idea what's happening there? Don't you play it one more time? Sure. Yeah. He's in the way of Alan Menu and he's not moving over. Menu hits him. Cox, Cox goes through. He's going to try and take the lead. If you get any of this, I'll be so impressed. This is a harsh question. It's <laughs> uh, mean. It's not Mansell at Donington, is it? No. No. Uh... It is. I'll give you a clue. It's touring cars. Oh, I know that. Yeah. 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 Very, very early days touring cars. Very early days. Uh, are we 93 at Silverstone? Oh, no, but close. A few years, a few, a few years uh, what did you say, 93? A few years later. I can feel it. I'll play, play again. I'll play again. I can definitely feel so a nil point. Names in particular. Yeah. Here we go. He's in the way of Alan Menu and he's not moving over. Menu hits him. Cox, Cox goes through. He's going to try and take the lead. Alan Menu, what a ledge. Is it Thruxton? Oh, no. <laughs> it's uh, it's Brands Hatch. Oh, right. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it was... The thing that's really... Cox takes... Is that Charlie Cox takes the lead? It must be, because it's... Well, actually, it's... So it's Alan Menu, Menu yeah. in the lead, and he is being... Uh, on the final lap and he's being held up by Revalia yeah. who is the teammate of Cox uh, in an effort to help Cox get the win um, so that's what I was looking for there I'm afraid at Brands so, and that was in 96 96 alright I'll give you that but it's uh, Charlie a dear old Charlie was you know, he went on to become commentator of course so tough round that one that was a tough question though, to be fair okay final Final clip before the bonus question. So, final clip, let's play it to you now. This evening, two places remain to be claimed in the fifth round of the FA Cup. We'll be concentrating in particular on events at Upton Park, West Ham and Swindon, and also upcoming events in Las Vegas. Nothing for Lloyd Hunnigan to regain, but a lot to hang on to. We set the scene from Vegas for Saturday's big fight. Hunnigan's defence, Marlon Starling's world title challenge. What are you doing there? I was killing it by the sound of it. it um, (laughs) Damn good. (laughs) I would say we're on sports night. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Can you tell me what year? Lloyd Hannigan, we are... Yeah, try to leave you some hints there. I would say... uh, 87. Oh. oh no, higher, higher. 88. Oh, 88. One more. 89. There we go. 89. Uh, because I'm, I'm going to give you the point because of all the wider, yeah. the wider context you've been able to give as well. Um, brilliant. Yeah, that was, of course, you uh, introducing the headlines on Sports Night in 1989. So I'm going to give you three out of three for that one. So a strong end because I'm very, very, very generous. Extremely Your generous. Your bonus question is this. Approximately, how many points did Colin Turkington collect to win the 2019 British Touring Car Championship? Another tough one. I'll give you approximately, so I'll allow within 10. Yeah, that's fair. 140. 
No. Nope. Oh, you're way off. You are way, way off. <laughs> 320. Yes. You know, the reason I, I struggle with that, yeah, but on the the uh, touring car coverage, you know, we do it all from the pit lane. Yeah. And uh, we have a tiny little monitor which a guy carries around on a pole and I can't read the bloody thing. And... <laughs> So I never know who's on pole or who's got how many points or whatever. It's a, far too many excuses, Ryder. Far too many excuses. I know. Yeah. Well, a racing driver you excuses. Points and uh, well, uh, Steve Ryder, I can tell you on our leaderboard, I'm afraid with seven points, you've been pipped just by Tom Chilton. Oh, in no. In 20th place with eight points. You slot underneath in 21st place yeah. with seven points. Not last, though. It's out 25, so you're all right. And you're just ahead of Jack Aitken as well, Williams F1 reserve driver. So, oh, you know, some yeah, decent so- names to be around. And that is our overall leaderboard. Season three leaderboard, though, which is the, what podcast season we're in, that places you in 10th spot not bad um, mid-table 11 so uh, <laughs> I've got so much more to remember than these young uh, no, you see David Coulthard gave us the exact same excuse mm. and now and I corrected him by saying that Mark Blundell is up there in double points figures so um, yes he is um, actually where is he on my he is sixth sixth is he? so there are no excuses I'm afraid none <laughs> Give me Mark Blundell's questions then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear Steve, thank you so much for playing Motormouth. Well done, yeah. Steve. It's a good effort, good effort. Now, listen, um, I'm in... Intru- a lot better, by the way, if I had to name how many points Mark Blundell got in the Touring Car Championship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Easier. We'll play that back to him. Mm. <laughs> so, Steve, I guess over the years, you've interviewed, I don't know how many, hundreds of people. Can you put your finger on one of those horrible interviews where you just wanted the ground to swallow up and think just get me away from this guy what a disaster uh not really because uh, i mean that would be very rude to uh yeah i remember <laughs> uh you know scandinavians are always a bit of a challenge and i remember stig blomquist once on the stage at the autosport awards didn't, didn't seem to be able to summon up a single uh, meaningful answer and that was oh, uh, that was a bit of a struggle no i don't think I, well uh, Jack Nicholas was always, uh, you know, unless you started off on the right foot with Jack Nicholas, he would bury you. And so you really had to, you really had to know what you were talking about. But, uh, but, you know, in the end, we had some... No, I wouldn't say... I mean, there are some in interviews that you, you just know aren't going to deliver anything of uh, any great consequence. But there are others that, um, you know, are a challenge. But when you get them right, um, they are... Fantastic. And the two that I would pick out as, as if your next question is going to be who are your favourite? Yeah, flip it around. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, from Golf Sevi Ballesteros. Uh, and, and of course, Evan Senna. Mm. And, you know, they both had the similar sort of Latin temperament and the, and the sort of broken English that sometimes makes an answer even more effective than if you, you, you know, you deliver it in the Queen's English. Mm. Senna had a way of putting things and Sevi had a way of putting things that you just went, wow. And, uh, you know, there's just so much charisma and so much electricity there. And, um, you know, Senna in particular was, 
was amazing. Could you could, could you feel that with Senna? I mean, the, the only comparison I can make is um, I've been lucky enough to meet Lewis Hamilton a couple of times, and and I got this sort of sense of um, he he was incredibly intense, um, and you knew he was there. And, it, and I know people of a certain standing carry a bit of an aura anyway, but I could really feel you know he shook my hand hard, he stared into my eyes, you know he was very um, intense. Did, what sort of vibe did you get from Senna when you met? It was just the impression that you got is, is no matter. And I was lucky enough, almost always, to be able to interview Senna one to one in a, in a fairly uh, controlled location. Uh, and in those circumstances, unlike anyone else you ever talked to, you just felt that every question you asked him to him was the meaning of life. And you know he would answer it. You know, you, there is no such thing as a sort of throwaway question and a throwaway answer. And the, the, the instance I always quote, we went to Estoril at the start of, I can't remember which season, uh, with McLaren. Uh, and they'd had a great season the year before, and they were just launching their new car, getting it out, out on the track at Estoril for the first time. And uh, McLaren got on to us and said, you know, would you come out and do some interviews and so on for uh, sports night and, and so on? Yeah. So we went over and... Uh, Senna was in the car and he did a few laps and, and, and he came back in for a debrief and we sort of waited around, nothing, one hour, two hours. And then the light was starting to go, so we had to move up into the press area uh, and another hour went past and we're on the flight out uh, at this point and, uh, and eventually we just sort of reached the cutoff where we just can't do the interview anymore. Uh, and the door came open and there was Joe Ramirez uh, uh, the manager of uh, Senna at McLaren uh, and Senna. And they came in, oh, well, very sorry, we're late, very sorry, we're late. Uh, and Senna came and sat down and uh, we had we were so pushed for time that as we he was doing the mic up, we just went into the first throwaway question. Uh, Ayrton, you know, first time in a new car, you know, what's your verdict? And, uh, uh, and so on. And... Uh, and it's my first time in a new car. He said, uh, uh, I haven't sat in the car for since October. He said, in November and December, my team work very, very hard. They work through the night. They work 24, they work through Christmas and into the new year, uh, hour upon hour. And he said, they have made no progress whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> And Joe Ramirez in the background. Oh, no. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and off he went. You know, you, you ask me the question, I'll tell you. I'll give you a straight yeah. answer, yeah. That's, that's the contrast that you get these days. That it would be the, uh, you know, the PR uh, speed kind of answer. But, um, I mean, it, it obviously led him into some sort of curious territory when he started... <laughs> You know, talk, uh, you know, other things that yeah. were happening around the circuit. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. What amazing charisma! Oh, that's, yeah. that's and, amazing. And you've had, you've, you know, to meet these people, to chat with them. It's, you've had a, an amazing and versatile career as well. But outside of of motorsport, outside of broadcasting, you know, do you have any hobbies, any interests that you uh, you tend to do while at home? No, we've got a we've got a super grandchild that we're looking after, and um, you know I, I tend to empathise with uh, with everything that lies there as well. And uh, no, I do a bit of running as much as possible, and you know try to keep a lot of golf, play a lot nice. of golf. Nice, good. And, uh, everything that you meant to do as well. I was going to say I was shocked when I found out you were 70 I was actually shocked because you don't yeah. look it at all <laughs> not 
shocked enough to keep it quiet though. But yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll can edit that out for you. <laughs> no, leave it in. Um, you're obviously amazing at broadcasting. We all know that. Uh, what are you crap at? What are you useless at? Uh, I don't. Well, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm useless at anything to do with cars. Strangely oh. enough, uh, I am. Uh, if you have a karting evening, I am always last. <laughs> if, I, if I get in the car, if I get any kind of you know chance to have a you know performance car experience, I am dreadful. And uh, you know, the one time that 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 was underlined was when I stuffed Regard Rydell's Volvo into the gravel at Clear Ways. Excellent work. And uh, and. Uh, there have been a few other instances of that but uh, you know I've been invited to go on um, uh, sort of endurance rallies and this I, mean, I can't think of anything you know the actual driving I would be hopeless <laughs> having said that you know I was lucky enough to um, uh, to do a bit of co-driving I say do a bit of co-driving you know sit alongside yeah <laughs> quietly uh, <laughs> not quite like the rally co-driving no. well it is no, the, oh, so, oh it is the same okay yeah, when um Back in the early 80s, I had a, a, a deal with, or an arrangement with Shell, uh, and I'd do a little column for Autosport, and they said, well, why don't we get you out in the field and, you know, do some, some competitive motorsport? And uh, uh, Penti Auricola was their, was their top driver, who lived locally to me, and he said, well, why don't you come and drive, uh, drive uh, co-drive uh, for me on the... Um, uh, the Audi International in Wales, which was the precursor to the uh, to the RAC, and he said the important thing is that you know we just have a laugh, have some fun, you know, you know, good old crack. And, and I said, well, you know, if it's on that basis, that's fine. I said, where do I turn up? And he said, well, we start in Aberystwyth. So come to Aberystwyth on the Friday night. And it's a one day event, uh, but we'll have some fun, you know. So I turn up in Aberystwyth, and they're all in, in the bar, and. Uh, <laughs> A good night was had, and uh, I eventually said about half past ten, you know, what's the schedule for tomorrow? And uh, he said, oh, you, you know, it's wheels up at about half past six, I'm afraid. He said, but, you know, don't take it too seriously. He said, we're just, just going to have some, we'll have a laugh all the you know, it's not important. And uh, so I went to bed with a few beers, and I thought, well, you know, we're going to have a laugh. And I came down the next morning at half past six, and... Uh, Penty was sitting at a table facing the wall on his own and he was wrapping tape around his hands slowly like this and he looked across at me and I had a thumping head and he looked across at me and he said we can win this <laughs> <laughs> and you got Michel Mouton and you got Tony Pond in the 6R4 and my god it was one of the longest it was one of the most thrilling days so, I mean, the car was just sideways all the way around I think we came third and uh, I, I took the wrong exit in the first round about coming out of the hotel. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't allowed to make any other contribution. So it was, <laughs> just sit there and be quiet. It was just watching him all, and it was sensational. Yeah, amazing. Was wow. What an experience. Amazing experience. Yeah. Um, the, you remember the old Telecom Astra? Good car. Yes. And, yeah. Oh, amazing. Very nice. Good old days. Good old days. Steve, what would you tell your 16-year-old self now? I think if you're one-on-one with Bill Oddie at the Valley in front of 18,500, <laughs> get down quicker. <laughs> That's the best advice we've had so far. And I couldn't agree more. Um, we have three final questions for you, Steve. Um, quick fire questions. 
Um, I'll kick it off. Harry, fast, all right. Um, what's got you excited at the moment? Uh, um, excited? Well, uh, people will laugh at the thought of me getting excited about anything, but what is, is, is really, um, um, yeah, excited? Um, the Last Dance on on Netflix, Michael Jordan. Never yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, I want to yeah. see this. Never being a basketball, but you know, I've, I've been aware of basketball, but yeah, Beta Path of the Last Dance, Netflix, brilliant. And, and it's it's a sports documentary, it's not a basketball documentary, it's, it's about motivation and um, strength of personality and everything else. But uh, yeah, that's what's got, got me going. Yep, cool. Brilliant. And um, if not broadcasting, presenting, what would you be doing? I'd like to have been a producer. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we did, I got involved in the production side when we were doing uh, the Legend series for Sky F1. Um, mm. You know, a lot of the uh, uh, the production element of uh, of that was uh, uh, I got involved in. But um, uh, I would have loved to have played a musical instrument, and uh, uh, but uh, yeah, production. I did a. You probably haven't got time for another long story, but it's uh, crack on. I did, when I was when I was at LBC, we all had to do everything, and you know you might relate to this in your environment. And uh, so one day you'd be doing sports uh, presenting shifts, and then another day production. So I was producer on this particular day. Do you remember? Um, you wouldn't remember, but uh, we had a, a breakfast morning program, which was hosted by Bob Holness. Yeah, I remember Bob. Right. Uh, Bob and Dougie Cameron. And, uh, and that, we're sorting ourselves out at six o'clock. They're the other side of the glass, and I'm the producer. And uh, something had happened. A bomb had gone off in Seville. And um, we need to get some reaction. It's a Basque thing or something like that. And we had no contacts or whatever. And... Um, uh, anyone got any, any number for Reuters or anything and uh, Bob Holness came on and he said um, he said my mate Angus lives in Seville uh, he's a journalist he'll give you a line and gave me his phone number and I rang um, Angus and there he was and I said oh it's, it's the uh, AM program um, Bob Holness and something happened and he got more or less straight cued onto air this guy and I sort of sat back and Bob said, um, uh, uh, Angus, uh, it's Bob Holness uh, in the London studio. And he goes, Bob, he said, I haven't heard from you for about 30 years. He said, he said how's the wife? He said, do you remember those? And Bob's saying, yes, what I'm ringing about is the, uh, is, is the bomb explosion. It's a bit, what bomb's that, old boy? But, just went on and on and uh, I got a serious bollocking that you know before you put anyone on there you, you explain to them exactly what's required yeah, you, you live and learn <laughs> I was the wife what I should have said to you at the start of this actually yeah, yes I'm, I'm presuming she still um, hasn't given birth to a child downstairs um, I'll find out in a few minutes but yeah, um, she has. I mean they're, they're very capable you well, know, they're, I know they're, well, we're yeah. having a home birth anyway, so does it really make a difference if I'm there or not? Not particularly. Not you know, she, she'll be fine. Um, final question for you, Steve, then we'll let you get on with your day. Um, what are you scared of? Uh, what are you scared of? I'm not sure. Well, no sort of phobias or anything, but I'm like any, um, 
any broadcaster, I think Des has the same dreams, and I don't know what kind of dreams Sue Barker has, but... You know, <laughs> Let's every, not go there. Every, every broadcaster, has, especially in you know a live environment, has the dream where, you know, you usually start naked as well. The, 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 you're about 30 seconds to on air and you've got no idea what the program is, no idea what the script is and so on. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of being found in those circumstances because I think, um, you know, the touring car boys would look after me enough if I was... About to go on air with no clothes on. Paul O'Neill probably wouldn't notice, but I think I think I, I, I get the tip off from Tim anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Well, listen, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us, and uh, it's been great hearing from you, hearing some of the old stories and some of the names as well that we haven't heard about for a long time. Really interesting. And um, touch wood, all this um, lockdown business gets taken away soon, and we can get back to racing. And and uh, in fact, it won't be long. I suppose August August first, second is the first race weekend. In August, we I think we're cramming 27 races into eight weeks. Wow. Like okay, cool. Well, Harry, we'll have to make our way um, we'll to a few of these. There. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. Steve Ryder, thank you so much Good for coming you. on the Motormouth Podcast. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and on Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile and interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.